Hi, I'm Kevin Harrington, an original shark from the hit television show Shark Tank, and you're listening to the Underdog Podcast. I've been too high up to fall, question marks, what's up with y'all? All we know is over time, barking like some underdogs. Underdogs, underdogs, underdogs. All we know is over time, barking like some underdogs. Underdogs, underdogs, underdogs. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Underdog. Today, I have an incredible guest here with me. Yuri, how are you, my friend? I'm fantastic. Thanks, Pam. Thanks for having me around. Thank you so much for being here, my friend. You are a rock star of so many realms, and I cannot wait to get into your story because I hear you've built a whole bunch of businesses in your 20s and like now just continuing to amplify and do amazing things for the world. So I can't wait to get into your story, my friend. So I'm going to start it off with my favorite question, which is what inspired you on your journey to where you are today? You know, I've, I had a bit of an accidental journey, to be honest. Um, like I stumbled into to business. You know, I went was on the path to being a lawyer and that didn't, you know, didn't pan out. And then I was going to be an executive and that didn't pan out. And I totally tripped into being an entrepreneur. And I found the first sort of spot of my happiness. And, and I realized you could take that in any direction you wanted to take it. That every other career sort of had guardrails, right? Or you know, like those things that they, when you're a kid and you go bowling, they put in the gutter so you can't fall in. Every career has those things, but uh, entrepreneurship has no guardrails. So the world's your, is whatever you want to create it to be. Your opportunity is whatever you want to create it to be. And you can surround yourself by whoever you want to be surrounded by. And when you have a job, none of those things are true for you. You might have a bit of control, but you don't have that control. So that was really my inspiration was the ability to surround myself with the people I wanted to be surrounded by. Uh, and that's what keeps me going today. I love the people I work with. I get this privilege of working with amazing entrepreneurs who want to grow businesses. A lot of them are growing businesses. They're going to help change the world as well. Uh, and that's just before breakfast, right? They got up to build a business, change the world, you know, change the way that they run run their teams and they, they haven't you know, had eggs yet. That's what I get to do. And that's what keeps me going. I absolutely love that, Yuri. And I have a question for you because whenever someone stumbles into entrepreneurship, I always say there has to be something in the childhood that connected at some point in time. So question for you, what did you want to be when you grew up? I wanted to be a lawyer my whole childhood. Mm. And like really weirdly, like when I was like eight and nine, I would you know, hold trials with my teddy bears and I'd convict them of crimes and, you know, put them in jail and lock them up and all sorts of weird stuff, right? Like I was lawyer bound. I used to watch lawyer shows. I'm old enough to remember when LA Law was a, you know, a TV show. You know, I read law books, like I read books about trials. I wanted to be a lawyer so badly. And you know what? I got to university and realized I never want to be a lawyer as long as I did. <laughs> but the thing is, lawyers are entrepreneurs. So technically, technically, I, I guess they are. But back to what I was just saying about you got to work in a such a confined environment, right? And I, I you know, I got to admit, I, I, I left university after about a year and a half, year and three quarters. You know, I liked going to university. I just didn't enjoy the class exam studying part. Uh, so I just the thought of going on to do that didn't work for me. Sort of the articling, being a you know law slave in a law firm for a bunch of years. None of that did anything for me. And at the end of the day, if I got to be a partner in a big law firm, that still wasn't doing it for me. So it was just a, way more fun when I was trying my teddy bears at age nine and convicting. That was way more fun. That was the best part of being a lawyer. I love that. I love that. And so growing up, what were some of your biggest inspirations? Who or what, I guess you could say? 
Yeah, you know, I've got a bit of a blur, to be honest with you. Like, I, I don't, don't know that I had a super happy childhood. Like, I had lovely parents, and they're great people, and they were education-focused. And I mean, you know, I grew up as a, you know, white Anglo-Saxon Protestant man, so I grew up with as much privilege as you get in this world. But, you know, like, I, I went to an all-boys private school, and, you, you know, I wasn't a good fit there. You know, so back to constrained environments, I wasn't a good fit in that environment. And uh, when I graduated grade 12, I, you know, I grew up in Australia, I moved to France on a bit of a whim, and it changed my world. The first white settler hit Australia you know, just over 200 years ago. And I went to France and lived in a building that was 400 years old. So, you know, you realize that the world is way bigger than the world that you had experienced. And that to me was the beginning, that the world was always going to be bigger than my experience. Whatever I thought I knew, there was way more out there that you just had to find, right? And that's still true, right? For each of us, that's true every day. The world is bigger than you think it is. The world is bigger than you can conceive of. There are more ideas than you have. There, there's more thinking going out there than you can conceive of. You know, for me, that, that was, again, the biggest motivator was this amazing world of stuff out there that I'd never heard of. And, you know, a bunch of years ago, I moved. And you know that box you move every time you move, right? It's the box. It's got like your high school report cards. It's got your like life-saving badge from Girl Guides when you were nine. Whatever, all that stuff that's in that one box. And every time you move, you dutifully pick it up and you say, I don't trust this to the movers. I'm going to carry it myself. You put it in your car and you know, like you seat belted in and you drive it to your new house. Okay, so I've moved around the world my whole life. I still have this box. Last time I moved, I, I actually opened it. And there was this book in there they gave us in like grade 11 or 12. And it was the book of all the jobs you could have, right? And what you had to do to get them. So if you wanted to be a doctor, a lawyer, a secretary, a vet, an accountant, uh, whatever you wanted to be in life, it was what you had to do to get there, right? You needed these grades, you need to go to university, you need to get this, whatever you needed to do. And so I'm sitting on my steps in my new house, flipping this book, realizing I have never had a job in this book, right? I've been working for 30 years. Not once have I had a job that's in this book. And, you know, other than my few friends who are actually doctors, lawyers, account, you know, like have real day jobs, most of the people I know, and I'm 47, most of the people I know don't have a job that's in this book. But that's what they tell you when you're 17, that this is everything that you can do, right? That's, that's it. That is the extent of the universe is in this 200-page book. Now choose from amongst that. And we don't just do that to kids. We do that in life, right? We tell people, choose from amongst these things. That's not how the world works. We're blessed to live in this era where there's stuff happening today that, you know, I look at people's job titles on LinkedIn and I think, what is it that you do? Like, that is a great title, but I have no idea what you do. So I'm Googling people's job titles saying, what is it you do for a living? So I've never heard of that. And it sure wasn't in this book that I got 30 years ago. So what can we all do now? Like, and, and that's the pay it forward, right? Now, how do we... You know, and you've got this great thought leadership going. How do we help people think bigger and think about things they've never thought of and take these, take the safety glasses or whatever they've got on so that they look at bigger things? Right. Amen. A hundred, one hundred thousand percent. And and see, that's you you mentioned a couple of things that is a lot of parallels between our worlds, right? Constraints, those constraints. Like I'd be in school and I'm like literally talking to my math teacher and here's where I start to talk some crap. I'm like, dead serious question. I ask her like, so when am I actually ever going to use this in life? This was in high school. And she's like, and this is talking about like calculus and like all of these things. And she's like, oh, well, you just need to know it now. This is like our class. I was like, I'm asking you, what is the real life application of what it is that we're doing right now? And she couldn't answer me. 
She's like, well, one day you're not going to have a calculator everywhere you go. Really? <laughs> exactly. All day, every day. I got one in my hand. It's so wild. Like when you were mentioning, you looked at that book and it's like your life is supposed to be lived within whatever's in those 200 pages, which is so wild to me. And I feel like that's why there's been so much disconnect in the world, that, you know, because a lot of people feel like if they don't go to college, if they don't follow that path, if they don't follow what's in that book, society's norms, that they're somehow a failure because their life is not linear, right? And as you and I know, life is completely not linear. I mean, even, even my life story, it's like I went here, then I went there, then I went sideways, then I went backwards, then I went forwards, then I went, to, you know, and it's like what a lot of people don't realize is this is the reality that shapes us. So I love that you were mentioning the, the constraints and how things went very differently for you. In- I'm not doing anything in my life I ever dreamed I'd be doing. You know, and I have a math story like yours. I remember asking in I don't know, grade 11, 10, 12, you know, politely because we were in an all-boys private school. I said, so, you know, why are we doing this? Why do I need to learn this? And in fairness, he didn't have an answer. So he said, son, it's just mental agility. That's why you need to do it. Mental agility. And, you know, years later, I went and got my pilot's license on a bit of a whim. And I realized what we'd done back then is actually useful and you need it to work out sort of trajectory of takeoff and landing in a plane. And I thought the problem wasn't that he was trying to teach us something that at the time didn't have any relevance to us, which Mm -hmm. is a bit boring. The problem was he didn't know where it could be useful to a bunch of, we were boys. But if he'd known that and said, boys, do any of you, any of you interested in planes and flying? most of us would have been right but he didn't know either so he didn't know what he didn't know and you can only teach what you know so you know again and bless his heart he was a nice guy and a good teacher but again you're limited by the people you're surrounded by and if that's who's teaching you today that's that's the limit to your knowledge too right and that's why they say you know never be the smartest person in the room yeah <laughs> i mean that's easy for me because you know this the bar's the bar's pretty low but uh <laughs> but back to where we started right you, the beauty of what you do and what I do is we get to surround ourselves by the people we choose to surround ourselves with. And, you know, if you're, if you're smart enough, you choose way smarter, way cleverer, way savvier people than you are. Absolutely. I mean, I, I did a, an interview with Kevin Harrington from Shark Tank and I was like, Kevin, like, what's been your biggest pieces of success that you like you invest in these companies and you're, we're going to get to yours as well. I'm sure. Cause I want to know your success factors in the companies that, you know, you choose to invest in. But one of his things was like, oh, I surrounded myself with geniuses. I didn't know anything. I just knew how to surround myself with geniuses in their respective fields. He's like, that's why I became successful. Right. So to your point that you're limited to who you surround yourself by. 100%, 100%. Oh my goodness. So after high school, so you went to college, you realized, it, so you went to college first for the attorney to become a lawyer? No, I was doing like the faculty of, it changed about every other month. So, <laughs> you know, I did psychology for a while. I did commerce for a while. I did English for a while. I did foreign languages for a while. I did international. This is all in the space of a year and a half. <laughs> um, so, so I did jump the dean's office was getting sick of seeing me with a oh I've got this new vision of who I want to be can I change so I think my transcript is about seven pages of withdrawals you know and then a c minus at the end but yeah no university lasts about a, a year and three quarters of you know a zigzag journey of through every faculty and department in the university pretty well then uh, you know it was the spring and I had no idea what I wanted to do and I thought I'm wasting time and money if I don't know what I want to do, why am I doing this? Why don't I just sort of drop out in the spring? And, you know, I'll, I'll sort of find myself by the fall. And, you know, I'll re-enroll for the fall when I know what I want to be when I grow up. Well, that was 29 years ago. I haven't quite re-enrolled yet, but it's on my list. One, one, <laughs> one day I'll work out what I want to be and there'll be a 
there'll be a university for that. That's amazing. That's amazing. And so what was your first step when you when you stepped out in your trajectory? I needed a job because I, you know, bless her heart, I was living with my mom at the time. And my mom had one rule. You can live with me for free. And like, I won't charge you rent and I'll feed you for free. But if you want beer money, you better earn that yourself. And if you want money for anything fun, you better earn that yourself. But you can live here for free and I'll feed you for free on the condition you're a full-time student. The day you're not a full-time student, I'll tell you what the rent is and I'll tell you what your food bill is. So fair enough. I I think that's actually a pretty smart rule. So the day I decided not to be a full-time student, pretty well, the rent was due the next day. Uh, So I had to go and find a job. So I went and found a job with a fast food company in Canada called A&W. And I found myself in work. Like I loved it. Work is one of those places where generally, and I appreciate this isn't everybody's story of work, but generally it's a meritocracy, right? If you sweep faster than the next kid, you kind of become the sweeping supervisor, right? And then, you know, you manage five sweepers better than the next guy and suddenly you're the sweeping manager, right? Like generally, again, I appreciate, you know, some of us have come with privilege that others don't have and have opportunity that others don't have. All that appreciated. Generally, there's a bit of a meritocracy to work. And that's what I experienced was worked a bit harder and a bit longer and a bit faster than the next kid. And, you know, you kind of get promoted. And I got a bit addicted to to work. I enjoyed working with people. You know, I was given a bit of management responsibility, super young. I totally did not deserve it. But, you know, some people, bless their hearts, put trust in me or they were drunk, one of the two. But, you know, I got a chance to lead other people and and learn from a lot of mistakes early on. And I had bosses who kind of looked the other way when I made mistakes and accepted that I'd self-correct and teach myself and pick myself up. And they didn't feel a need to point out my mistakes to me. They noted that I'd acknowledged I'd made a mistake and and let it go, uh, which is what I needed at a time. I was a young guy with a huge ego and Frankly, I was a bit of a brat, but I loved it. And I spent sort of three, four years uh, in the work world. And then the company I was working for at the time decided to franchise a bunch of its corporate locations, which would have meant I was either out of a job or I could buy a franchise location. And that's what I mean by accidental entrepreneur. It never occurred to me to be in business for myself. I'd always, like I was trying to manage faster than the next manager to become a director and direct faster than the next director to become a vice president. That was the path I thought I was on and never occurred to me to work for myself, but kind of got a bit forced into it, I guess, you know, it was either look for a job or do this thing, right? Run your own business. Didn't really know what that meant. Didn't have a context for it. Like I didn't really know anybody who ran a business, but thought, okay, I'll give this a try. You know, when you're young, you you kind of don't, I don't know that I'd do it over I'd do it now, if that makes sense, right? I was young, I was naive, I had nothing to lose. You give it a shot, you know, you don't know what failure could look like. Right. So I gave it a try and, and that became the rest of my life, right? And again, it was that sort of the, the door to opportunity opens. And I don't know if I was super smart to jump in the door and get on the rocket ship, but to quote somebody else, I shouldn't ask what seat was available. I just jumped in and maybe it was naive and maybe it was a bit blind and maybe it was a bit dense at the time, but jumped on. And uh, again, it's kind of been the trajectory of the rest of my life. Love that. I love that. And I love that you stepped in and you just said yes to the business. Uh, you know, if there's any advice that when, whenever I'm asked for advice by people who, you know, way younger and don't realize I don't have much good advice to offer, but you know, they kind of kindly ask, you know, cause I got a bit of gray hair. The one thing I say is like, there's no shortage of people in your life who'll say no to you, right? No shortage. No matter what good idea you have, most people will say that's a bad idea or you shouldn't do it. Right. Everybody's limited to their own, back to where we started this conversation. Everybody's got their own experience. And if you're trying to do something that isn't in somebody else's experience, 
the risk aversion in most people will say, well, you shouldn't do that either. Because it's not in my experience. I don't know what you do with that. I'm going to say no. The challenge is to listen to yourself when you think it's a yes and sort of tune out the no. Because really at that moment, you sort of worry that, well, if everybody's saying no and I do it, then everybody's going to say, I told you so. But actually nobody's, your real friends aren't going to say that, you aren't going to say that to you. You know, maybe the people in your life who shouldn't be in your life might do that. But most people, if something goes wrong, will actually pick you up and help you get back on track. But those opportunity moments, they don't last long. The window is short. They come along when they come along. They don't come along when you want them. They don't come along when you're ready. They don't come along when the sky's blue and the birds are chirping and you got nothing else to do that day. And, you know, and they don't sort of carry a banner in advance and say, hey, Pam, there's a great opportunity here for you. It's going to come along in about three months. Do you want to get ready for it? You know, can you prepare everything in your life and settle down some stuff? It doesn't work that way. It shows up, it bangs on your door really loudly at three in the morning, and it says you've got five minutes to put your clothes on and get in, or it's gone. That's how real opportunity works. It comes and goes real quick, comes at inconvenient times when you've got so much else on that you can't, that's when opportunity shows up. And you have a moment of truth where you look at yourself and say, I can either take this to the committee of everybody where the vote will be no, or I can take it to the committee of myself and decide whether the vote is yes or no. And, and that's that moment of truth. And if people ask what, to me, separates entrepreneurs from the rest of the good folks in this universe, is entrepreneurs in that moment go to the committee of themselves and they say yes. And everybody else goes to the committee of the world and says no. And that's an okay decision. There's nothing wrong with that. Because you'll, in fact, never know what would have happened if you said yes. So it's an easy decision to make. Because it's not like you watch somebody else jump on the opportunity that you just doesn't work that way, right? It's, it's kind of weird and, you know, it, it morphs. So you never really know what would have happened. All you know is your life continued and it continued okay. So you say, well, good thing I didn't try that thing back 17 years ago because, you know, things might not have worked out for me. But you won't know that. The entrepreneur at that moment voted yes, jumped on, and maybe it didn't work out for them and they went and got a day job and whatever they had to do to get by. But the successful entrepreneur at some point said yes to that one. That's what defined them, is that the committee of themselves saying yes. Amen. That's one of my favorite things. That's honestly one of my favorite quotes ever. Just say yes. Don't think about it. Just go. (laughs) Don't think about it. Just say don't. And I love what you mentioned about don't go to the committee of everyone else. Because especially if you're consulting with people that have never been down that route, they're not going to know how to respond to you. You're asking people to give you an opinion. It's like, it's like, you know, if you need surgery, going to your neighbor who's a greengrocer and saying, hey, you know, like, I wonder, you know, where should they make the incision? Well, the person doesn't know, right? I mean, they'll give you an opinion, but they don't know. Bless their hearts. They're trying to help you but they don't know. To your point, you can't go to the committee of the the uninformed to get an informed decision. Amen. 100,000%. 100,000%. And I love, and I love, 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 love that you said yes, Yuri. Like you said yes to owning a business that you knew, well, you kind of knew about, but I'm just saying like, that's a whole nother, that's a whole nother realm at A&W. Yeah. I mean, I was lucky I did know a bit about running the business. So I I knew about how to operate, if that makes sense. I didn't know how to run a business. I knew how to sort of do what I was told and, you know, follow the bouncy ball, you know, on the karaoke machine. I knew how to do that. But, you know, the bigger part of running a business, that's a trial and error thing. And honestly, I, I get the blessing of talking to entrepreneurs all day, every day. Anybody who tells you that they went and did a course on entrepreneurship, or they talk to people about, and it set them up for success as an entrepreneur, it's full of it. Mm-hmm. You have no idea. All you do is get through the day 
and you learn from it and you get up the next day and you do a bit better and you get up the next day and you do a bit better. Nothing prepares you for it. It's trial by fire. It really is, Yuri. I just remember like people, they were like, no, no way, Pam, this hasn't happened. And I'm like, oh, let me tell you. The first three to five years of entrepreneurship, like you said, trial by fire. And you have to keep yourself afloat somehow. I remember like I because I was going to school, then I had my restaurants and then I had my real estate development. And I just remember like, I would forget when I would write certain checks and I wouldn't budget appropriately. Like it was a mess. My numbers were a mess. So I was overdrafting left and right. And I was like, there was a point in time where like, that was my middle name. Like it happens. Like, it's just like, like you said, anyone who says they haven't, you know, that, oh, everything's peachy. There's no way you are full of it because the entrepreneurship, it's back up against the wall. And the thing that's really hard about entrepreneurship is like when you do admit that you're backs up a wall like that, you feel like a failure. I know because I've been there and I was so like the anxiety I felt and like the failure that I felt inside. And I, I needed to talk to my coaches and my mentors and my peers and all of that who understood because without that, I probably would have sunk, which is what I think a lot of entrepreneurs do, right? They hold it all in and they think that they're supposed to launch and be perfect. It's like, into this reality, right? How about for you, Yuri? What were some of the biggest challenges in kind of operating the business? Like you said, you've been in it and been told what to do and know what to do. But then when you actually became owner, it shifted. And so you were actually the owner and operator. So what were some of the lessons that you learned and some of the challenges that um, you experienced along the way? Well, mine was a bit like yours. Like I, I had very little money to get going. Like my mom, bless her heart, lent me some money. So the banker mom was sort of my first big investor. You know, I remember lying in bed at night at two o'clock in the morning, you know, doing math. Like, you know, if we make a bank deposit by 5 p.m., then payroll will clear at midnight. But if we don't make the bank deposit by 5 p.m., payroll won't clear Right. So, you, you know, you're making those just you're doing that math all the time to making sure you're just that half a step ahead of, of whatever's coming. And I remember, like you said, at the time thing, oh, I'm a huge failure, right? Like I, I'm barely able to make payroll. And then a few years ago, like I read Phil Knight's book about founding Nike, Shoot Up. Mm-hmm. And I remember him saying that until the day, and I'm paraphrasing, I might get it slightly wrong. But he said until the day Nike went public at whatever multi-billion dollar valuation, he said we were essentially insolvent until the day we went public. I can't remember, I think it was a $20 billion valuation. And he said, that you live on the edge, right? Businesses live on the edge as they grow. And there's no way to grow without sort of continually pushing the envelope, whether it's you're borrowing more money, whether it's you're reinvesting in the business, not taking a salary, pushing people to work harder and do more jobs than perhaps they signed up for. But, I mean, that's the growth story of almost every company I know. And it's hard work. Right? It's hard on the founder who's trying to do it on their own. I think most founders keep it in to exactly what you said, right? I, I feel like a failure, so I don't want to tell everybody I'm a failure. And God forbid the people who work for me realize I'm a failure and they pack up and want to go and work for somebody else. Or God forbid they realize how close we are to the edge and how you know, maybe their paycheck is half a bank deposit away from bouncing. Um, so they'll pack up and leave. And so you don't enlist anybody's help or support. So you, you really try and go it alone. And again, you don't know anything. So going alone is the worst part because you don't know anything. You know, again, I've been doing business for myself for 25 years. If I had anything that I would go back and do differently, it would be to engage people in the, the challenges and opportunities. It's easy to engage people in the opportunities. You know, the sky's the limit. We're going to reach a 
gajillion dollars and like all that good fun stuff, mission statements, vision, like all that's fun stuff, right? Easy to easy to get people to talk about. Founders love to talk about that stuff because it's all optimistic and it all sounds good. It looks good on posters on the wall and you can put on your website and you give everybody a coffee mug with the new mission statement. Like it all feels great. But to go to people and say, you know what, I, I, I need to tell you how, how tight things are. Can we really, what, what can we do around here to try and help with that? Uh, and I remember a silly one. I, I, you know, back in the day when we were growing at record speed and we were adding businesses every week. And I, I remember I opened our office supply cupboard and literally office supplies fell out on me. Like there was so much stuff in there. You open the door and like stuff just flew out at you. And I remember thinking, hang on a sec. Like we are like three hours from not making payroll, right? Like we literally are making bank deposits like on the day in order to clear payroll that night. But this this supply cupboard's like full of waste, right? We don't need all of this stuff here. What did we do this for? And then I realized because I'm the only person who knows how close to the edge we are, right? These people, bless their hearts, were ordering office supplies. So we never ran out. They were trying to help. Like a week later, we put in an incentive, which was for every dollar we saved in office supplies this year over last year, we'd give the office staff 10%. And I think we ended up writing a $20,000 bonus check to the staff. Like we saved a ridiculous amount because everybody ran around, the, like everybody's printer was set to color print and color prints, you know, 28 cents and black and white's two cents. So suddenly people are running around the office telling me, Yuri, you can't print in color. You know, do you, do you know how expensive it is to print in color? You can't print in color. And like they're going into my computer and changing my settings. So I'm not even allowed to print in color. You know, and we used to have those like pretty pink and white and green paper clips. And somebody said, well, those are seven times more expensive, you know, like a box of those is $3 and a box of just metal paper clips is 60 cents. Like, why are we buying these expensive? I'm thinking, where were you people all a year ago? <laughs> but that's my fault, right? That's not their fault. Right. They were getting pretty paper clips. You know, if money's everywhere, well, why not get pretty paper clips? $3.60, it's only $2.50 difference, right? $2.40 difference. But the minute you say to people, hey, I've got a problem or I've got an opportunity for you to participate, suddenly everybody's there to help you. And again, if I had my time over again, it would have been to engage people earlier and say, hey, look, here's the situation. We're growing a million miles an hour here. Like, you know, we borrow a lot of money in order to grow. The growth creates opportunity for people, but it also creates this bit of an anchor we're dragging behind us for a while. What can we all do to pitch in, to pull this anchor with us so it doesn't pull us backwards, but keeps us going forward? Like, what can we all do? And, you know, if I'd done that, I had smart people. They would have worked out how to put the anchor in the boat and put an engine off the back and, and move the ship faster. Like I'd have been better off, but my ego wouldn't let me do that, right? My ego was, well, I, me, Tarzan, I know everything. Yeah. You know, I, I can't show cracks. Bad on me, right? That was dumb. Yeah, no, it's a journey. Even for me, like to even talk about to talk about the weaknesses was like the most painful thing in the world for me. <laughs> I was like, you know, because we're taught that vulnerability is, is a weakness and not a strength. Totally. 100%. Oh my goodness. You're, I love your story. And now when you transitioned from the restaurant world into the venture capital world, how did that all bridge together? I'm interested to hear how that shaped out because your trajectory is amazing. Absolutely. Yeah. Amazing. So I was in, uh, we had three different sort of restaurant businesses. We had a bunch of A&W franchises, but we still have today. We had a steakhouse chain, a little Western Canadian steakhouse chain. And we had a bunch of Pizza Hut franchises. And so somebody bought the steakhouse chain and somebody else bought the Pizza Huts. And so I was in my mid-30s. You know, I had a little, little pile of money from the sale of both of those. Not enough money to retire on. You know, not enough money to do anything 
too wild and crazy, but I had some money. Now I had time because the 2,000 employees that were in those businesses were working for somebody else. And, you know, our office went from 30 down to three. So I had time, not enough to do in Yuri's day, and a little pile of money. I thought, okay, what do I do with the rest of my life, right? I'm 35. Like I got to, you know, maybe I, I don't know, go back to university. What do I do? And uh, somebody gave me this advice, which I've religiously done every year or two since then, which is you make four lists, the list of things that you love and the list of things that you hate, the list of things that you rock at and the list of things that you suck at. Hmm. You take the list of things that you hate and the list of the things you suck at and you put them aside. And you take the list of the things you love and the things that you rock at. And you put those two together and say, what do I do? What's in this, right? And it's like doing a SWOT analysis, right? You put your strength and your opportunity together. What's the opportunity and what am I really good at? Same here. What are the things I love doing? And what are the things I rock at doing? And you put that together and say, what is that, right? Like what's the, for me at 35, I was saying, what's the job in that? Like what, what's the future in that? And I realized the things I really love doing, I love working with entrepreneurial leaders. I love working on the strategy of business. I love looking sort of at the long horizon in business. And then if I took the list of things I hate back from the side, I hate being in the details. I hate being in the weeds. And I hate managing big teams of people. There are things like performance reviews. Like I know people need performance reviews, but I hate writing them. I hate sitting in them. I hate giving them. I hate talking about them. Again, I appreciate people need them and want them, but I just don't want to do them or be involved in them. So knowing your own limitations, right? And knowing the things you hate and that you're not good at, and I don't think I was a particularly good CEO either. So if I like sort of the strategy and I like working with entrepreneurial teams and I like looking at the long horizon and I like thinking about the future, that became venture capital for me. I get to talk to a lot of amazing entrepreneurs. I get to listen to their vision for the future. I get to you know listen to how they want to build their teams, listen to how they want to build the strategy around their business. And I get to sort of wager that they've got it right. That became the rest of my life. And every couple of years, I, I don't, take the last set of lists, I start them fresh and I still make those four lists and just test that where I'm going is aligned with the things I think I'm good at and the things I love doing. And then I test it against the list of things that I hate to make sure there aren't, because there's always a few things you hate in everything, right? You can't, nothing's perfect. You don't get hundred percent of the things you love and zero things you hate, but you want to test that. Are there too many of the things I hate in what I do? And if there are, can I hire people to do those or can I outsource them? That was my sort of turning point, if that makes sense. And that that's what became, you know, the venture capital piece. That's so cool. I love the concept of those four lists. You know, I've shared that with a lot of people over the years. And again, it's not mine. Somebody gave me the gift of that. You know, and it's funny because I every now and then I'll, you know, you put something on somebody's desk and you see the corner and realize they've got a list that starts with things I love. So, I, you know, I think hopefully you can, we can all spread that word. There's a poetic beauty in writing down the things that you love and the things that you rock at. And there's a cathartic release in writing down, this is the stuff I hate and this is the stuff I suck at, right? Like, you don't have to share it with anybody. You don't have to put it on the internet. You don't have to make it your homepage on your website or your backdrop on LinkedIn. You don't do any of that. Just for yourself, just writing it down on a piece of paper. You know what? I, I'm going to let this go. I suck at these things and I don't want to be any better at them. You know, everybody talks about fixing their weaknesses. Why? You get to an age where you say, you know what? I am who I am. I suck at a bunch of these things. I could spend a ton of time taking what is a weakness and making it neutral, right? I'm never going to be great at something I'm terrible at today, right? Right. Best I can do is be okay at it. Or I could take something I'm quite good at and become exceptional at. 
same amount of effort. Right. Like, why wouldn't I do the second over the first? Whereas we all sit there, and this is what, one of the things I hate about performance reviews, is it tells you all of the things that you need to correct. Like, why would I bother doing that? Tell me the things I'm good at, and I'll get better at those. And why don't you find somebody else to do the things I suck at, right? Like, like give them to somebody else in this team who, who might enjoy those things. But sitting every quarter telling me that I need to improve the things I'm bad at, a waste of oxygen. Why would I do that? It is an energy too. It's like, why not focus on the things that you're awesome at that you love? Get better at those. Get better at those. Absolutely. See, I learn something new every day. So that's something that I'm going to do today and (laughs) make sure that everything's in alignment. Sometimes it is and sometimes it isn't, right? (laughs) We all need reminders, right? We all need those moments. You know, I have a friend who uh, every, every year on January 1st, he does his personal net worth statement. And I said, well, what, what do you mean? You've got so many zeros on your personal net worth, man. It doesn't make any difference. He's like, yeah, but it's a moment to take stock. Mm. And he said, if you don't set moments in your life to take stock, then you never do and you never celebrate, right? Like we're all bad at celebrating our own successes or most of us are bad at celebrating our own successes. So, you know, mm. whether it's writing lists of things we're good at or celebrating the progress we've made, or I've got kids who celebrate when the line on the door frame goes up because they've got taller. Can we all all get some joy in that? And joy in our own equivalent. uh, I got a bit taller. I love that. I absolutely love that. Celebrating the success and taking stock. That's also extremely important. Because so often, especially entrepreneurs, we're always looking ahead and we're always looking ahead. And it's like, you kind of forget how far you've come because you're so enveloped in what's next (laughs) that you kind of forget to enjoy what's here right now. Yeah, we all think that our journey is not going as fast as somebody else's journey, right? Somebody else is doing it better, faster, stronger, longer, deeper, better, greener, bluer, whatever it is that they're doing than we are. So we've got to catch up with them. We're all on our own journey. We're not on somebody else's journey. Absolutely. And and you're in the venture capital world. It's such a fascinating and amazing world to me because I love entrepreneurs. I love businesses. I love logistics. What are some common myths, I guess, that you would like to bust in that realm today? And, or like common misconceptions or something. And then also what kind of are the biggest success factors that you look for when you invest in a company? So that would be cool to hear. Yeah. You know, I think everybody sort of sees venture capital as a bit of a lottery. You have no control over your success, that you put a bunch of bets down a little bit like going to Vegas and sitting at the roulette table, right? Where, you know, you just put a bunch of bets all over the board and, you know, you hope it lands on black 27 or whatever it is. It's certainly higher risk, but it's not gambling, if that makes sense. So, you know, everybody's got a, well, you invest in 10 to have one success, or I don't know anybody who plays by those kind of ratios. Every company we invest in, we believe will be successful. You know, we have not had a company in our venture book fail. Not to say everything has been wildly successful, but we haven't had a failure. And I don't think that's because we're super smart. I think we're cautious. I think we do our homework. I think we think things through and I think we stick to discipline. So that that's worked for us. But this whole myth of, you know, one of your companies grows 20 times and eight grow two times and two fail, whatever those numbers are that I keep reading about. I don't know anybody who, who plays by that math. It's certainly not what I see out there. I think as well that, you know, everybody sort of talk, everybody's got a Facebook story or a, an early stage story where Somebody painted a wall at Facebook in the early days and they've walked away with options that are now worth a gajillion dollars. Okay, 
I don't know anybody who's been that lucky. Uh, I'm sure somebody was once. You know, most companies grow modestly. Some companies don't grow much and a few companies grow exponentially. So you want to try and find the companies that grow exponentially or at least find the, the companies that grow modestly. So you're trying to work in there. What we look for and our discipline is we try and find companies that have about a million dollars in revenue. And that can be, you had a million dollars last year or last month was at 86,000, right? So you're on, on pace to do about a million dollars. And we like to see that revenue come from people you're not related to. So uh, <laughs> would be great. Like to see about 10 employees. And the basis for that is, you know, can you begin to build it? Can the founder begin to build team? Can they begin to think about their org charts? Can they motivate people? Can they hire the right people? Can they retain people? Can they build a culture? Uh, and again, preferably those 10 people don't have the same last name as the founder. And we like to see a founder who's kind of all in, whatever that means for that person. That doesn't necessarily mean financially all in, but they've got to be at least time all in. So this has to be the, the thing for them. They have to get up thinking about it, go to bed thinking about it. You know, I hate to say it, go to the shower, go to the washroom thinking about it. You know, this has got to be their one true love for now. Not forever, but for now. Got to be their passion project, the thing that they really want to see succeed. That's amazing. And through your experience in the VC world, you're in, I mean, this could be personal, this could be business, this could be really anything, but this is one of my favorite questions, which is, you know, what would your older self tell your younger self based on what you know now? But I know you've dropped so many gems throughout the interview, but that's something that either or, or you can give, give both business or professional? Well, mine would be to be kinder. I think I was, uh, I reflect on the Yuri in his 20s. I think I was pretty intolerant. By that, I mean, I didn't put up with much. I think I was pretty inflexible. And I know I was arrogant. And I think the learning as you get older is that, that kindness goes a long way. It makes you feel better as the person being kind. It sure makes the people around you feel better. And it builds a stronger world. So I think if I was had the chance to talk to my 25-year-old self, I think I might have had to sort of give myself a bit of a, a whack on the noggin to tell myself to be kinder, but that's what it would be, be kind. Love that. And what advice would you give to an entrepreneur who's a startup or aspiring to build their business to somehow one day scale it through a VC firm or really, really anything? It's, it's their dream. What would you, what would your recommendation be to them? Yes. The first thing is yes. If you believe in it and you're passionate about it, the answer is yes, do it. Be realistic. The number of pitches we see where the number ends in a billion in five years, it's sort of eight out of 10. Eight out of 10 businesses don't end in a billion dollars. Be realistic. Back to, again, modestly successful is better than unsuccessful or better than a, a constant fight with your shareholders because you're not delivering on what you promised. Try and be fr shareholder friendly. Bring in shareholders because they believe in you and believe in where you're going and you believe where you're going. So. Don't lie about what you think the opportunity is. Don't exaggerate. Be optimistic, but don't exaggerate, if that makes sense. Everybody wants you to be confident and optimistic, but don't exaggerate. Don't tell us things that aren't going to prove to be true or that you're not sure are going to prove to be true. Just be clear and honest. You want people on, you want people on your rocket ship who are volunteers, not conscripts and not prisoners, if you know what I mean. Don't take prisoners with you because they'll be looking to get off your ship as fast as they can. And at the worst time, and they'll get off loudly and they tend to all jump off to get like prisoners. They'll all get off together because they'll break out. And that won't leave you a pretty rocket ship, uh, you know, to fly. Get people who want to be there, who understand why they're there, who are on the same mission you are, going the same place you are with the same objectives. Share good news and bad news. As you and I have discussed today, there's no magic here. The path is not going to be rosy 
the whole time. The direction is not up all of the time. Nobody expects that. If all you tell people is the, the good story, people become very suspicious. We know it's not true, right? We know there are obstacles. We know things are going wrong. Tell us what they are. Maybe we can help. Maybe we can't, but we'll appreciate the honesty. Absolutely. I love that, Yuri. I love that. Thank you so much for sharing that. And now, my friend, what's up in your world in the next six to 12 months? What's what's new? What's happening? Yeah, you know, coming out of, you know, the last two years have been rough. COVID has not been anybody's friend, whether it was financially a difficult time for a business or whether it was a financially lucrative time for a business. And we've had a bit of both, right? We've had companies where COVID was a big financial windfall, where COVID was not a friend. Universally, it hasn't been a friend of teams uh, and the people in the business. And we're seeing mental health cracks in teams that cause a lot of, you know, we're personally concerned because we care about these people and care about their emotional well-being and their families. And we're concerned for the teams around. So uh, I'd say, you know, I don't want to sound like a a downer, but I think the next six to 12 months for CEOs who care, their top priority should be the mental health of their teams and asking the tough questions. Not just sort of sitting at a meeting and saying, is everybody okay? Good. Let's move on with our agenda. But, but what are you building into your, uh, your culture that makes it acceptable for people to say, you know what, actually, I'm not okay. And I'm not saying I'm, I'm going to not be okay forever, but I'm saying today when you ask, I'm not okay and I need help. What are you doing as a leader, whether you're the CEO or a department leader or you're the supervisor of people sweeping? What are you doing to make it okay for somebody to come to work and say, I'm actually not okay? Uh, okay. I think that's what we need to worry about. You know, we know that uh, everybody's reevaluating their what, what they call work. So they're reevaluating the job they have. They're reevaluating where they do it. They're reevaluating the company they work for. You know, a lot of people found different work through COVID and maybe they liked it. Maybe they like the flexibility of what they're doing. If you're running a company that needs people to report to work for some amount of time, what are you doing to make that appealing? You know, I don't think kegs of beer or ping pong tables but they're not going to cut it. It's, it's what is the culture you've built, right? You, you can't make people come to work with things. You make people come to work because they want to be part of a team who's at work. Right. So what are you doing to make your team want to be at work and want, and each member wanting to be part of that team and to come to work, and I, whether they do that virtually or in person, but what are you doing to make that team thrive? So I, I think the next six to 12 months is, if I'm a business leader, I'd say, Focus less on the where's the company going and focus more on where's your team going. I think the companies that do that will find really strong teams ready to boom six to 12 months from now. And those that don't will be wondering what happened to their otherwise successful pre-COVID company. It's very interesting that there's a massive distinction now. And that's what I'm hearing as well. The mental health situation and like everything with COVID just shifted the whole game with everything. So I appreciate that you shed some light on that at a high level because it's truly it's another pandemic of its own if yeah. you will it, it is i mean I, if i'm being candid I, i'm tired uh mm-hmm. you know it's been two years of, of supporting teams and supporting leaders to be their best and make difficult decisions and uh to push through when there weren't enough employees and when employees got sick and when employees were frightened and when employees' families got sick and where employees couldn't see their families and when employees were working from their one-bedroom home with their spouse and toddler and dog in the background. And, I, you know, I, I remember being on a Zoom early with an employee and I said, well, there's a real echo. But, you know, where are you? And, and he wouldn't tell me. And I said, are you okay? Like, what's wrong? 
And then he changed his camera angle and I realized he was sitting on his toilet seat because his bathroom was the only quiet room in his one bedroom condo. And his wife was sitting on, on their bed working from home, you know, and they, the child was sort of doing schoolwork in the, the tiny living room, you know, and I remember saying, I'm sorry, like I, I feel for you. And he said, look, Yuri, don't feel for me. He says, I have work and a home, but let's feel for the people who might, might have neither. So, you know, that's easily said and generous of him to say that, yeah. but we've all experienced something through this that it's okay to acknowledge uh, was challenging. Others may have had it worse. And for sure, you know, again, I, I speak from a place of privilege to say I'm tired and I'm fatigued, but I know others have had it way worse. That yeah. doesn't change the fact I'm tired and fatigued. And we all need to acknowledge where we stand, right? And how we feel today. 100%. 100%. The world needs a reset. I like to say. Needs a reset. world needs a reset. So what's going to be your reset today? You know, I love it. You're right. Thank you. So yeah. much. Thank you. Thank you so much. I mean, and it's, it's just like, that was beautiful. <laughs> that was absolutely beautiful. I appreciate your honesty and like just everything about you. I respect so much of what you've built, who you are and the leader that you are for you and your people, the businesses, the entrepreneurs and everybody that you influence. And it's just, it's truly amazing. But now you've got to let everyone know where to find you and your awesomeness, my friend. <laughs> well, we're headquartered in Vancouver, fulmerandco.com. So uh, my name, my phone number, my email is all on the website. So we're not hiding behind anybody. Feel free to reach out. Uh, coffee's free. Online chat's free. Happy to chat with great entrepreneurs doing great things. So anytime, anybody. You are amazing, my friend. Thank you so, so much for being here today. So that's it for today's episode of Underdog. Catch us next week, always dropping on Thursdays. And remember, if you're interested in real estate or want to learn how to create more money and magic in your life, check out meetwithpamela.com and let's chat. Sending you so, so much love. Underdog, underdog, underdog. All we know is over time, working like some underdogs. Underdog.